We are asked from time to time where we got the name of this radio show. The term parallax is not as familiar to people as it could be. The term comes up in discussions of vision and astronomy. In both cases, it refers to an assessment of distance using a difference in perspective from a different position. Recently, we discovered that a book has been written about the use of parallax in astronomy. So right away, we were interested. As it happens, the use of parallax as applied to objects in the sky promised to reveal to the human race the dimensions of our universe. And it did, but it was not an easy process. The complex and colorful tale of how observers since the time of the ancient Greeks set out to learn how far away the moon, sun, planets, and finally the stars really were is chronicled in Parallax, The Race to Measure the Cosmos by Alan W. Hirschfeld. Dr. Hirschfeld is a professional astronomer at the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth, and an associate of the Harvard College Observatory. Alan Hirschfeld received his undergraduate degree from astrophysics from Princeton and his Ph.D. in astronomy from Yale. The book has gotten great reviews. Said Yale astronomy Dorit Hofleit, Parallax is a fascinating celestial detective story written in a beautiful, lucid, engaging style. Scientific American columnist and skeptic magazine publisher Michael Shermer said, while with this highly readable, cosmically accessible book, Alan Hirschfeld has done for the measurement of the cosmos what Deva Sobel did for the measurement of longitude. Readers will never again look to the night sky in the same way again. We liked it too, of course, and love the title. So joining us now to discuss this tale of scientific discovery is Dr. Alan Hirschfeld. We're very pleased to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Dr. Hirschfeld. Well, thank you, Doug. Would you do us the honor of explaining to our listeners, as we've tried to do before, just what parallax is? Well, uh, as you mentioned, uh, parallax is basically the effect that you notice when you look at some object from two different vantage points. And that can be as simple as looking at an object on your desk uh, with your right eye versus looking at the object with your left eye. And uh, if you think about it, it makes sense that when you look at the object through your right eye, you'll see it against a somewhat different background array of objects than when you look through your left eye. And uh, the, the great cyclops of mythology with <laughs> one lone eye in the middle of his head would never experience parallax because he'd always be looking at the world around him from that one perspective. And we won't talk about it much today, but I did like a little aside in your book about the use of range finders, putting little optical devices that, in essence, in essence, separate your eyes by several feet, which is very useful in determining how far you might want to drop an artillery shell. That's right. It, what that says is basically you don't have to be rooted at one spot to have a parallax effect. You can <clears throat> look at uh, a more distant object, uh, whatever, you know, some number of feet or miles away, and uh, move to a different location and look at it again. And since you're viewing that object once again from different perspectives, you'll see it's projected against a different background. And this apparent shift in the location of the object, that's what is meant by parallax. And of course, this can also be applied moving around a telescope and doing things like surveying. Exactly. Yeah, this is the, the surveyor's art. I mean, nowadays, of course, they have laser rangefinders, so they really don't have to appeal so much to this pure geometric method. But that's the way that they used to uh, find objects, or the distances to objects that they, they couldn't step off themselves. Well, Dr. Hirschfeld, when I was a boy, I remember being informed that it, although it looked like the sun and the moon moved in the sky, this was an illusion based on the fact that the Earth itself was turning. 
I remember thinking that was kind of odd. And of course, for most of human history, it was accepted that the sky spins around the Earth. And uh, in the, of course, in the search for parallax in astronomy, they were trying to not just nail down distances, they were trying to decide how the universe fits together. So can we, can we go back to the, the ancient Greeks for a minute and sort of uh, review what they were looking at back uh, before the time of Christ? Well, sure. I mean, what the ancient Greeks were seeing was basically what we still see when we go outside on any clear night, uh, and we see the stars moving up and, and over from horizon to horizon. Same thing with the moon. And in fact, during the daytime, of course, same thing with the sun. The sun appears to rise in the east, arch high overhead, and then set in the west. So your senses tell you, or seem to tell you, although they're tricking you, that the earth that you're standing on is fixed and that the sky, the heavens, uh, moves around us. Uh, but our senses are not always the best judge of reality. And so what some ancient Greeks proposed and what Copernicus proposed many, many centuries later was, in fact, uh, this is all an illusion that the, the sky or the objects in space themselves are more or less fixed, and that the Earth spins around once every 24 hours, and that accounts for this apparent horizon-to-horizon -horizon motion that we see. And in addition to that, uh, getting to the whole parallax idea, if the, the sun is in the center of the cosmos, as the ancient Greeks understood it, and all of the other planets, including our own, move around the sun, it should be possible, they predicted, to see um, more distant objects in the cosmos projected against different backgrounds. That is, the Earth, in moving around the sun, would give you many, many different vantage points on the farther away universe. And just as looking at an object with your right eye versus your left eye, makes the object appear to shift side to side against the, a background of objects, so too with the Earth moving around the sun. We should see, then, stars executing a very, very slight wobble in the sky that is really a reflection of the Earth's movement around the sun. Well, they, of course, wanted to know how far away the stars were, but uh, I, was, I was intrigued at how they had to start a little closer to home. And you mentioned in the book how Hipparchus uh, measured how far away the moon was rather cleverly by noting that there was a total eclipse in what is today Turkey in the Hellespont, whereas observers in Alexandria saw an only four-fifths eclipse. And by doing the math, uh, they were able to figure out that the moon must be something like 35 Earth diameters away, which is pretty close to what it is. Yeah, the, the ancient Greeks were great geometers, and uh, they knew all about parallax and triangles and such, and so uh, they did use this parallax effect, looking in this case at the eclipsed moon from widely separated places on the Earth's surface, and uh, sure, the moon's going to look different. The shadow on the moon will look somewhat different if you're on, looking from different locations on the Earth. And yeah, Hipparchos figured out the way to actually turn that observed difference in appearance into a distance estimate to the moon. And uh, as you said, he was pretty much right. And not to keep plugging the Greeks, but I think what is it, Aristosthenes, he measured, got a great diameter of the Earth by comparing sunlight straight down in Aswan versus an angle in Greece. Again, pretty, pretty good geometry. 
Yeah, that was Eratosthenes. Eratosthenes, who uh, was the chief librarian in the great uh, cultural and scholarly center of Alexandria in Egypt. Well, I find it interesting that you explain in the book that uh, that the Christian Christian thought came to accept the universe of Ptolemy, where he had the sun uh, going around the earth, even though the, the scriptures don't contain any such explanations. But this geocentric universe became sort of part of Christian doctrine, and of course, uh, later a big headache for Copernicus and Galileo. Yeah, it was very easy for them to justify that belief, because all that they had to say was, hey, look, if the earth is moving around the sun, we should see the stars wobbling back and forth on an annual basis as the earth swings around in its orbit. And they didn't see any such thing, and so they concluded correctly in their minds, uh, that the Earth must just be sitting still in the middle of the whole universe. What they didn't appreciate was the sheer size of the universe, how far away even the nearest stars might be, so that, in fact, that slight wobbling of the stars is there. It's just that they didn't have the observational instruments to detect it at the time. The book is Parallax, The Race to Measure the Cosmos. We're speaking with author and astronomer Alan Hirschfeld. Dr. Hirschfeld, a couple of big names, uh, figured out how planetary motions worked with mathematical precision, Johannes Kepler and Isaac Newton. But you, you mentioned in your book a very colorful figure who preceded them. I think it's worth a, a mention, uh, Tycho Brahe. Exactly, yeah. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about this, this interesting astronomer? Yeah, Tycho uh, was a Dane, and he lived uh, just after uh, Copernicus. Uh, and he, of course, was aware of Copernicus's uh, great revolutionary idea of putting the, the sun in the middle of everything and having all the planets whirl around it, which was counter to what was believed by most people back then. He became more or less an amateur astronomer and vaulted to fame when he discovered what astronomers now call a supernova, a star that exploded. This was in the year 1572. He just called it a new star. Of course, he nor anybody else had any idea what it truly was. It just was a new star that was in the sky one night, had not been there before. But he took the whole parallax idea, uh, sort of turned it on its head, and determined that that new star could not have been close to the Earth. It couldn't have been a flare, let's say, in the Earth's atmosphere. It exhibited no parallax shift whatsoever, no matter when or where he observed it from. So it truly was a brand new star in the heavens, something that was thought to be utterly impossible. Uh, upon hearing of this, the king of Denmark showered him with all sorts of honors and uh, money and, and an island. He gave him an entire island of his own on which... Uh, Tycho built this extraordinary house and observatory and became more or less a one-man research institution there. Along the way, uh, being a very argumentative individual, he got into um, a, a duel. The, the scuttlebutt is that uh, somebody had, I guess, insulted his mathematical ability, and that, of course, he couldn't take. Uh, but his uh, swordsmanship was not up to his <laughs> mathematics, and uh, he lost uh, the major portion of his, his nose in the fight. Uh, but being very practical, uh, he fashioned his own 
a metal prosthesis and wore that for the rest of his life. <laughs> that only begins the colorful story of, of Tico. I mean, it, it goes on for an entire long life. We could probably do a whole show on him if we, if we chose could. to. <laughs> yes, yes. But he was instrumental in basically uh, observing very accurately the positions of planets and stars and comets and, and such. He laid the groundwork for a lot of very important theoretical work that was carried on by Kepler and Newton decades later. Well, it said that Tycho was the last great astronomer before the age of the telescope. He did very precise measurements using these giant, uh, I don't know what you'd call them, but... Well, they call them quadrants, but yeah. basically they're just like the protractor that you can buy now at uh, you know, the supply of stationary supply store. That's the word I wanted, a, pro, a giant protractor. But yeah. uh, in the, your book contains a very interesting digression on, on glass. We accept the fact that, you know, optical quality glass, we take it for granted in the modern world. But as they were developing the telescope era, you know, getting optical glass was not a slam dunk to manufacture. It was not. I mean, of course, you had to have the right recipe, and that was basically unknown. I mean, making glass is straightforward. They've been making glass for thousands of years. But making glass that is optically clear and really crystal, crystal clear that can be used for astronomy, making it uh, without bubbles that are suspended in it proved to be a tremendous challenge. And only a few people in the world early on in the 1600s had figured out how to do this, 1600s, 1700s. And they were not eager to pass along their commercial secrets. So governments who supported astronomy and supported uh, navigation, for example, or, or military technology, making military telescopes and spyglasses, they had to pay uh, dearly to acquire optical glass or finished lenses. And it became, uh, you know, quite, uh, quite a market, quite a competitive market all throughout Europe. Uh, for buying good quality lenses and telescopes and surveying equipment. To, not to give away, uh, to, to do a spoiler for this this tale of how we figured out how <laughs> the stars were, but by the early 1800s, uh, scientists um, pretty much knew how big the solar system was, but they were still trying to find a, a parallax that told us how far away the stars were. Um, they were kind of led astray in a couple of cases by some false assumptions. The first was that well, stars must be roughly the same brightness, so if you see two that are close together, one dim, one bright, that must mean that the bright one is close, and you can measure it against the dim one, but that turned out to not be the case. That's right. Yeah, uh, stars are very, very diverse species. Uh, you can have stars that put out easily a thousand or a million times the light of our sun. You can have other stars that put out just a tiny fraction of the light that our sun puts out. So if they're scattered all throughout space, you have no idea just looking at a star's brightness how much energy is truly coming out of it. You could be looking at a really, really luminous star that's all the way across the galaxy, or you could be looking at a very feeble light emitter that is relatively close up. So you can't use the brightness of a star to conclude how far away it is. You have to resort uh, to this geometric method, this parallax method, to figure out the distances to stars, and from that, uh, basically the scale of the whole universe. Well, you know, I, I know, not to, not again, to, to, to jump ahead, but I do know that the first star that, uh, that, was, that a parallax was determined for was a star called 61 Cygni, and I always thought that was a very odd thing that they chose 
that that star was the one that um, that um, we learned how far away it was. But we, we had a suspicion about that star because a lot of telescopic measurements showed that it was slowly moving against the background, so the assumption was it must be close. That's right. It was slowly moving, but for a star, it was moving relatively quickly. You know, most of the stars appear in the same place from night to night, from year to year. The constellation shapes stay pretty much the same. But this star from year to year, was shifting its position. It it appeared to be uh, flying across the sky. Not anything that could be seen with the eye itself, but from detailed measurement with telescopes, it was definitely moving across the sky. And if you think about it, if the star is very, very, very far away, even if it's moving at high speed, it's not going to appear to shift that much in the sky. So astronomers figured... Since this star is moving noticeably across the sky, it must be a relatively nearby star. Now, still many, many, many trillions of miles away, but as stars go, relatively close. And therefore, that might make it an attractive target for these uh, parallax measurements. What astronomers were trying to detect was an annual wobble of a star. As the Earth moves around the Sun, again, uh, all the stars are going to wobble very, very slightly, but the ones that are pretty close are going to wobble more noticeably than the ones that are far away. And so out of all the millions of stars that you can see in the sky with a telescope, you want to make your parallax measurements on a, on a candidate that will likely reveal a result. And so they were looking for other indications of nearby stars. And this particular star called 61 Cygni had been, as you said, noted to move quite quickly across the sky, therefore pretty close, therefore here's a good target for observing for a whole year to look for an annual wobble. Let's get to the hero of the piece, Friedrich Wilhelm Bessel, the man who finally did it. But I would want to note as an aside that uh, in terms of these streaking across the sky, I read that this star about a, discovered about a century ago called Barnard's Runaway Star because it was felt to be streaking so rapidly across yeah. the sky, moves like one-seventh the diameter of a full moon over a century. So it's not exactly rocketing across the sky. Exactly. I mean, don't go outside and try to see the stars <laughs> moving in the constellations. I mean, they, they do rise and set, I mean, but we're not talking about that motion. We're talking about basically their positions within the constellation shapes. Those stay intact over many, many long periods of time. Well, Friedrich Bessel was the man of the hour. He finally made the measurements that showed how far away a star was. Can you talk about... Uh, about how he did it and how, how far he discovered that these stars really were. Well, the reason why he was successful and why a couple of others were successful shortly after him was finally, finally after this long period of time since the ancient Greeks, astronomers fully appreciated the difficulty of the task that was presented to them. The ancient Greeks we're looking for a visible wobble of the stars due to the Earth's movement. But by the 1800s, it was realized by every astronomer that what they were looking for, these wobbles, were extremely, extremely tiny. And the only way 
to detect them would be very, very careful observations with very high-quality instruments, very stable instruments that didn't wobble, that had no optical defects or anything of that, that sort. It was the, the first instance of real precision measurement in astronomy. And this was something that Friedrich Bessel in Germany was very, very good at. He was extremely patient and meticulous as an observer. So he did observe this star, 61 Cygni, over the course of a year, through the very frigid German winter also. And uh, in the course then of that year's worth of observations, he, he basically <clears throat> uh, plotted up a, a graph of where this star was located in the sky, and it did shift back and forth in a one-year period, reflecting the motion of the Earth. Everything fit, everything was right, and so that 61 Cygni became the first star to have a measured parallax, and when he turned that into uh, a distance, it came out to be about 10 light-years away. This dropped a lot of jaws, and they realized how far that really was. Well, as I said, astronomers by that time had a sense that they were dealing with a really difficult problem because, in fact, the stars must be extremely far away. So they weren't taken completely by surprise, but nevertheless, it was really a stunning number. I mean, 10 light years, each light year is about 6 trillion miles we're talking an enormous distance to one of the nearest stars to our solar system. You know, this is not some far-flung star. This is one of our neighbors, basically, being approximately 60 trillion miles away. This is why, by the way, this is why astronomers were not able to detect these subtle parallax wobbles, because they were just so, so tiny, they were extremely difficult to detect. I should note that uh, in the 60 years after the first three stars uh, had their distances determined using parallax, there was still less than 100. It's a method that really can only be applied to the closest stars, but we now have some satellites up. You mentioned at the close of your book that's going to allow us to get some really good measurements on, on some of these closer stars. Yeah, the breakthrough came in the uh, early and mid-1990s with a satellite called Hipparchos, which measured the the parallaxes, therefore the distances, to several million stars. So uh, we now have accurate distances to a large number of stars out to about 500 light years or so. But to put that into perspective, it's 30,000 light years from us in the solar system to this, just the center of our galaxy. So even with millions of stars' distances measured, we still have sort of an accurate map of just our local region of the galaxy. It will be up to the next generation of parallax measuring uh, spacecraft to basically map out accurately uh, our entire galaxy. Dr. Hirschfeld, we thank you very much for speaking with us. Uh, if we had more time, I'd want to talk about Joseph uh, Fraunhofer and, and, and William Herschel and some of the characters in your book, but I think our listeners are going to have to go out and get a copy for themselves at this point. I think that would be, be a good idea. I agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> All right. The book is titled Parallax, The Race to Measure the Cosmos. We've been speaking with uh, astronomer Alan Hirschfeld, author of the book. Okay. Thank you, Doug.